like almost right on time, um, I would say put it on your calendars and get used to it. It, it just kind of helps us to not, not freak out about getting out of here in time. So 9.30, believe it or not, it's on the website and it's in reality now. So um, yeah, so we're going to put it in print in as many places as possible just so that we remember 9.30. But so we are in our next to last week of this current series we've been talking about just kind of who we are from like a DNA level. Um, what makes us us and why God has placed us here to do what he's placed us here to do. And, and over the past few weeks, we've just kind of been tackling um, the vision statement that God has placed on us as a church, which is just to make disciples who love God, love one another, and love the city. And so we've spent one to two weeks on each of those. Today, we're kind of on this last part uh, of love the city. And, um, and this is... You know, it shouldn't seem so pivotal for a church to, to think like this, but uh, we feel incredibly obligated to the fact that God did not create the church through Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his very words, him being the cornerstone or the plumb line for the church. We feel very convicted about this fact that the church is not meant just to be a place in a city. It's not meant just to be a building in a city. It's not meant just to be a time of gathering in a city, but it should be something that makes whatever city it's in better, period, better. The ultimate best is going to be Jesus. It's going to be the realization, the acceptance of the gospel, new life when people are brought into the kingdom. But to be honest, even before we get there, there's still better to be seen, better to be done. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we spent some time uh, in Mark, and we were reading Mark 12. And in this particular passage of Mark 12, the scribes and the Pharisees, they have been asking Jesus questions uh, for several years now. This was kind of the end of the conversation. And one of the scribes or one of the lawyers, he simply asked Jesus. Um, and traditionally, we've always thought he asked Jesus to trip him up. But if we read the book of Mark, he almost asked it because he's genuinely curious about the answer. And he's been uh, persuaded by the answers that Jesus has given to every other question that he just wants to know. And he says, hey, uh, Jesus, teacher, capital T, Rabbani, um, what is the most important commandment. And Jesus begins to quote the Shema from Deuteronomy, which they would have all known. They would have remembered their great-great-grandparents talking about it, just Shema Yisrael, or hear, O Israel, there is one God. Love the Lord your God with everything you have was kind of the summation of it. Love the Lord your God with all of your, your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. And then he said, and second only to it, go ahead and throw that verse up there for me really quick. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the Hebrew and the Greek amalgamation of that. And then it says, and second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. We tackled the love, love the Lord your God with all that you have a few weeks ago. Today, whew, I just about knocked the water over. Today, we want to ask the question, what does it look like? What does it mean to do this second part of this one commandment. Because really, this is, Jesus treated it as one commandment. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? So there was another scribe at one point that tried to, to get Jesus on this, because Jesus didn't just say this once. This was a pervasive idea, pervasive thought, someone that, something that he was trying to bring the people along to understand. And he tried to ask Jesus, so uh, if you want me to do that, I need to know who's my neighbor. And Jesus told a parable about the Good Samaritan. And basically, at the end of that parable, he said, you're asking the wrong question. Don't ask who your neighbor is. Instead, ask what you need to do as a good neighbor. So we're going to go ahead and get that out of the way. Our neighbor is anyone who is relationally or proximally close to us, period. Relationally or proximally, by distance or by relationship, they are close to us. That is our neighbor. We're going to get that out of the way. Scripture says, as a commandment, not as an option, love your neighbor 
as yourself. Um, there's a couple ways, I think, and we're going to get into another text, so this is just going to be our springboard. There's a couple things we need to see that if, if we're loving, loving someone as ourselves, number one, um, we don't want any bad to happen to ourselves. So we can love our neighbor by shielding them from bad, but also we want good to happen to ourselves. So we can love our, na- love our neighbor by trying to do good. And so today, that's, whoop, man, just all kind of stuff going on. I thought somebody grabbed me. That's scary. Uh, today, that's the question. What does it look like for us to love our neighbor as ourselves? And we're going to jump back a book um, to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to have this text up here. Last semester, we actually went through the Sermon on the Mount uh, in community groups. So this is going to be a little bit familiar for you. Um, but today, we're going to look at 5, 13 through 16. And, uh, and we're also, I'm going to go ahead and prepare you that uh, we're going to close with a little discomfort today at the end of the service. Um, and so go ahead and just kind of prepare yourself emotionally to be a little uncomfortable, but that's okay. We need to do it. I'm going to pray and uh, pray for distractions to end and us just to jump right in. God, we love you. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your word that we can uh, not only hold in our hands, but we can hide in our heart. Um, God, just like you desire to become a part of us, you desire that your word becomes a part of us too. I pray that you would speak to us today. Uh, through your spirit, through your word, that you would make us look more and more like Jesus and make us look more and more like the bride uh, that you desire for us to be. Lord, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So in Matthew chapter 13, at this particular part in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus just says this. Uh, He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may may see your good works and give glory to your Father God who is in heaven. So here, Jesus is talking to a group of people that have declared that they are going to follow him. He's been giving them kind of the ideas of what the law looks like in form of this new grace that they are in the midst of experiencing. And here, he says there are two things. He says, you're salt and you're light. Now, most of the time when we think about the Great Commission, we immediately jump to Matthew chapter 28, Acts 1, great places, because they are called the Great Commission. But I think this here is kind of what started that train of thought is the Great Commission too. The Great Commission in 28 and Acts 1 says this, that therefore now go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and don't worry because I'm going to be with you through it all. And in Acts 1.8, similarly, he's like, look, uh, just wait power is coming, and when it comes, I want you to go, make disciples. But here, in this particular place, he's informing these people who have declared that they're following Jesus, not so much about the word of their mission, but about the identity of who they are now in light of the mission that's going to come. And he says two things, you are salt, you are light. In this first example, or this metaphor that he's comparing them to by giving them identity, he says you're salt. Back in this time, salt would have done three things, basically. Uh, The word salt that we get here uh, actually comes from the word salarium, which we actually get our word salary for uh, in the English language, because back in this day, salt was actually a form of currency. Uh, Even in the Middle Ages, it was called white gold, because Roman soldiers were paid in salt, because salt was necessary, and it was expensive, and it wasn't easy to come by, and so salt was valuable. 
incredibly valuable. Most of us, we have table salt on our table. We, we can buy it, uh, I think the store brand, for like 98 cents for a carton of it with the squeaky tab that you open on top, and it never really closes all the way, and it even has iodine added to it. That's awesome. I prefer kosher salt because it's got a little better you know, texture to it, and it stays on meat better, especially when you're grilling beef. But anyway, salt on beef is very important. Never, never undersalt beef. But anyway, salt, we'll get to that in a minute, uh, it's valuable. It's valuable for these people. And so the first thing, even here, without even spelling it out, the people hearing it, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. He said, you are salt. You are valuable. The first thing, if, if we're looking at this as our identity, uh, we need to understand that as believers, Christ followers, people that have declared that we are going to follow Christ, abandon sin, be his for the glory of the kingdom, we should be adding value to the world around us. We should be adding value to the world around us. And, and so I don't, I don't know what that means for you. I think on the surface it could start as something as simple as whatever job you have, work that job with everything that you've got. I think scripture will attest that this is a good and faithful servant, someone that works as though they're working unto the Lord. Add value by doing your job. I don't care if you're bagging groceries. If we have been redeemed and called by the name of Jesus, we should bag groceries like a champ. And we need to be grateful for the job. Whoever employs us, they should look at us and they should say, man, something is different about that guy or that girl. They add value to my company. You know why? Because we've been called to be salt. We've been called to bring value. Add value. Man, if your kids are at an elementary school, man, I love my wife for so many reasons, but I love my wife because she's incredibly involved and getting more and more involved at the elementary school because she realizes that she should add value to that school. She should do the most that she can because of who she is and what she can do to add value. She goes there to try to make that school better, add value. Our neighborhoods, it may mean, oh, watch out, it may mean that you get on the dreaded HOA. We don't have one of those in my neighborhood. That's great, I'm glad, because get, I'd get a letter every week about my grass, but, or my weeds, my cultivated weeds. Um, add value to your neighborhood. Maybe it's on the HOA, I don't know. Or maybe it's just, believe it or not, being a good neighbor. Like a good neighbor. Maybe you need to be like State Farm, I don't know. Just don't charge your neighbor's premiums. But add value. I don't know what that looks like for you. Where do you work? Where do you serve? Where do you live? How can you add value to that place? Because as an identity, as a calling, we're told to add value. In your faith family, your church, do you add value? Do you bring your gifts, your times, your talents to the table? Do you add value? Because we should. I'm not trying to convict you, I think scripture is, but, but do you add value? Your circle of friends, are they better because of you? Your family, is it better because of you? Your community group, is your community group better because of you? What kind of value are we adding? Because understand, and, and, and I will, I'll reach here, the price that Jesus paid was incredibly high. He did not redeem us to be worthless. That's not me putting guilt on you. I'm just saying, high price, high cost, high value. Not only was salt valuable, uh, but salt was also, um, man, it was a preservative. One of the reasons that it was so valuable was because everyone needed it. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have that. So what did they do? They would pull out a side of beef, and they would salt it down. It would draw the moisture out. They would hang it, let it dry, and they could keep that beef for sometimes like months on end, like a giant slab of jerky. That sounds great. Could you imagine walking out on your back porch and say, honey, I'm just slicing off some jerky. It would be so good. My wife would be so upset because she can't stand the sound of people chewing. But I would be really happy because I love beef jerky or lamb jerky. I don't know. 
no pig jerky back then, but it would have been good. He also, what they also would have heard when he said, you are the salt, is that, man, you should preserve. What do we preserve? I think if we look at the rest of Scripture, we preserve peace, we preserve unity. But here's the other thing, maybe reaching a little deeper. I think, I think as those who are called by the name of Jesus, who are supposed to be taking Jesus to the world, I think we should be preserving uh, the image that he created in us too. Because I still believe there will always be a fingerprint, a remnant on creation of who God is and how he made us. Because he said, I'm going to make them in our likeness or in our image. Remember Genesis? And I think that's always going to stay. It's going to be marred by sin. It's going to be obscured by sin. But that fingerprint, that remnant of creativity is still there. We're called to preserve that. I think we're actually called to do what the next quality of salt does, which is enhance. I think we're called to do that too. But we're called to preserve. One of the reasons that salt's so valuable the other thing, probably our favorite characteristic now, because we have refrigerators and we have money, salt did. It, it made things taste better. It just did. If you salt beef right and you put it on a hot grill, you don't need anything else. Do not marinate steak if I'm coming over to your house. Just salt, just pepper, and heat. That's all I want. I don't need A1. I don't need any of that. Just salt, pepper, heat. Or dark chocolate, hey, 75% or better with a little sea salt, mm, that's good. Hallelujahs. I mean, that's good stuff. Salt enhances. Have we added value? Have we preserved what God desires for us to preserve? And man, have we just made life around us better? Because that's our identity now. Do, you, do, we, do we make things better? One of the questions that we ask as a church, like if we cease to exist, would Greenville miss us? Like, would they miss us? Would, have, we, have we added to the value of this city? Have we made it better to the point that if, if we could no longer exist as a faith family, gathering here, doing community groups, uh, being on mission for Jesus, would the city miss us? That's a scary question. If you left your neighborhood, would your neighborhood miss you? If you left your place of work, other than just being an employee, to punch a card, would they miss you? Have we enhanced the world that's around us? Because there will be times, to be honest, um, that the mission that we are sent on, and I'm not taking the gospel out of this, but sometimes it takes a while for us to get to sharing the gospel for the ultimate best in a place. But until we get there, we should make that place and those people better because we're there. Quietly earning the right and the privilege to gain trust, to gain favor, until the ultimate best to love our neighbors, we love ourselves, can be revealed in the form of the gospel and the Spirit working in that to redeem people and call people unto himself. But until said time, do we add value? Do we preserve what God has made? And do we just make it better? Identity. The second thing that he said is, uh, you are the light. You are the light of the world. No pressure. No pressure. Light of the world, though. That's identity. Those who have said that I'm following after Jesus, I'm abandoning my sin, I want to be yours, I want to be known by your name as your sibling, as a son of God, just like you, you're still the Savior, I'm just a kid, but still, I want to be known like that, you, us, we, light of the world. No pressure. Man, have you, I don't know if you like to camp, I love to camp, and have you ever been like in the darkest, like the darkest pitch dark night, cloud cover everything, no stars, no moon, and then that fire finally gets going? 
Like I remember one time, my brothers and I, we decided and we took a friend with us that we were going to do about 40 miles on the AT Appalachian Trail, and we got a late start. And we got in really, really late. And so we hit the trail, and we had found the map, and we're like, man, we can make camp here about two miles in. And so we hiked in pitch dark with flashlights that were wearing thin, and we get and we start to, uh, you know, put our tents together and get everything ready, and the temperature starts to drop. And I just remember getting a fire started that night. The wind was blowing so hard that we had to, like, set up like a block in the form of a, a tarp to keep the fire going. And I remember when that fire finally got going, it seemed like everything was just okay again. <laughs> Little did we know that we had set up camp on the very top of a small mountain. If we walked in either direction in the middle of the night, for whatever reason, we'd die. But anyway, like that fire, man, that fire was so good. And that fire, like it showed life, it showed hope, it showed all those things, and it meant that our fingers weren't going to fall off because we didn't pack well enough for the cold that we didn't know was coming. And even we even woke up and it was snowing like crazy. We got out. We went to Arby's and had five for five. I remember it vividly. Uh, this was years ago when you could still get Arby's five for five. And now I wouldn't touch Arby's. But anyway, like just that fire, though, or maybe in the darkest of nights, um, maybe you don't deer hunt, but last year uh, I shot a deer and I couldn't find it. And Reed came over and he brought a flashlight that was about 80 times brighter than mine. And I remember roaming through the woods with like a, a 300 lumen flashlight, which if you know flashlights, like if you're an L-Rod, you do. 300 lumens is not that much. He brought one that was like 3,500 lumens and it was just like hope shining through the woods. I'm just like, oh man, look at this. It's going to set trees on fire. I found that deer in like 30 minutes. But sometimes just... Man, just light in the darkness, what it does. And Jesus says here, you, we, the collective, are the light of the world. Not a light, not some light, but the light of the world. The same way in which a super bright flashlight or a fire in the middle of a camping scenario brings hope, that's what we're called to do. So not only do we add value, not only do we preserve, not only do we make things better, but now, man, we show people where hope is. We are the light of the world because Jesus has radically wrecked us, remade us in his image, taken our sin and tossed it in the garbage and said, you are mine, known by my name, you are to be the light and the hope of this world. Who? Did you know you can be hope for someone because of what Jesus has done in you? You are hope, I am hope, we are hope. And guess what? Without us, there is no hope. Not that we're saving, but because Jesus is, but the agents of his salvation and his gospel are us. We are plan A, there is no plan B. And so if we are not being bright, if we are hiding the illuminosity of our life, if I can make up a word, then people will not hear and they will be in darkness and hope will not be available. It is on us. The onus rests on the church, period. So this city should miss us if we're gone. Your neighborhood should miss you if you're gone. Your place of work should miss you if you're gone because you as a result of Jesus, offer hope. Or we can. Hope. This is not taking the saving power away from God because he does it. He alone does it. But he says, how are they to hear or how are they to believe unless they hear, according to Romans 10? How are they to hear unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who take the good news. We are those that bear the good news. We don't save. He does but he asked us to carry the gospel into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our city, into our homes. We are the light of the world. 
The crazy two things about both of these passages, though, in the salt, he says, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet if it's lost its saltiness. He said, everything that makes you who you are, if you lose that, it's kind of useless. It's a waste. Back then, they would build a second level onto a lot of their houses, and they would need to put something on the floor like a plaster kind of a deal to keep it from falling apart. But what they discovered is if they put sand in that plaster, uh, it would just crumble and it would break and it would fall through the ceiling. It wouldn't be any good. But they discovered that they could take salt and mix it with their normal mortar and it would make it last for a long time. But guess what happened as a result of that? It was a great floor and it lasted, but the salt could no longer do what it was supposed to do. The only thing it was good now for was to be walked all over, to be trampled underfoot. Same way with a light. He says, even though this is your identity, you've been made to be salt, you've been made to be light, there's still this possibility that you could make salt lose its saltiness and it could be useless. That's there. That's the possibility that you don't live up to your identity. The same thing about the light. The reason that he's warning us not to do this is because there's the possibility to be disobedient and to do it, to hide our light under a basket, and it won't do any good. In this particular instance, he's talking about like a candle in the middle of a room because they didn't have the flip switches, which are great in the middle of the night. When you hear something you shouldn't hear, you flip on that light and everything's fine. But they didn't have that. They had a candle that they would set in the middle of the room, and it would light the whole room. He said, how silly would it be for you to put a basket over that? Because then it wouldn't do what it's supposed to do. If we are hiding the joy that is in us as a result of Jesus, it's the same thing. If we are not adding value, if we are not uh, preserving, if we are not making the world around us better as a result of Jesus, same thing. Same thing. It's like being given the greatest gift and choosing just to leave it under the tree wrapped up and never opening it up. That would be silly, right? Jesus says you're salt, you're light. That's who you are. Live in that. Be that. Man, for us, what does that look like? I think we kind of have to look at it, and we've been asked this question a lot. Like, we are a church, 429601, and, and we're going to be that uh, until God tells us not to be. But I realize a lot of you live in 05, you live in 07, you live in 11, you live outside the city. So we're going to look at it from two different perspectives. Corporately, here's what we do. As a church, as a collective, we're going to do everything that we can to take as much ownership as possible of this zip code where we are. You know, you drop a pen right here, and you've got a, a beautiful stingray of accountability, which is the shape of our zip code, um, and we're going to do everything that we can to take care of that. Can we take care of everything? No. But each year, we kind of evaluate and say, hey, who can we invest in the most that's going to have the most reward? Uh, one neat opportunity that's been late dropped in our plate over the past couple of weeks is uh, the DSS office here in downtown. They've said, um, we would love your help. And I said, okay, that'd be great. And so we get to go in first and kind of help them build out a kid's area for when they bring kids in with parents and they have a place to stay and, and read and play and that kind of stuff. It sounds small, but it's a big deal. And so we get to say, you know what? We love you enough to serve you in this way. Yeah, we'll buy it. We'll spend the money. We'll budget for it. We'll take care of that. And not only that, but we have an option to take care of DSS workers. And I don't know if you know anybody that works for DSS, but they are burnt. They are worn out. And we just get to go and say, you know what? We love you. What you're doing is valuable. It's huge. How can we say thank you? And we get that opportunity. Maybe you want to be a part of that. So as a corporate uh, church, as a, a body in downtown Greenville, we get to do things like that. And we're constantly asking, who are the people that need it the most? Who are the people that are taking the gospel already? And how can we partner with them? PMAC is another group that does it. Man, the things that they do for kids in after-school programs, we couldn't possibly do. They're already doing it. So we just ask them what they need. 
Do you need people? Do you need money? Because we know that they're loving people in the name of Jesus, for Jesus. And so what can we do? Corporately, that's how we function as a church. As individuals, man, here's what you do. You say, where I am, first of all, you need to acknowledge who your neighbors are. Who are my neighbors? Who are those that are proximally close, relationally close? Am I doing these things for my neighbor? Am I showing light? Uh, am I being salt? Am I doing this for my neighbors? It, it may mean, I've already mentioned it, you may need to get on the dreaded PTA board. I know, thankless job, lots of hours, but you may need to do that. Why? Because you can make the school where your kids go. Maybe your kids don't even go to that school. Um, I don't think you can be on the PTA board if your kids don't go there. That'd be a little creepy. So take that away, but maybe your kids go to that school. And so say, hey, uh, what, what do you guys need? Like Sarah Collins, where our kids go, like they do all this, they do crazy stuff that couldn't happen without volunteers. And so my wife valiantly jumps in there and she knows it's going to cost her time and, and all kind of things and she just, she just does it. Uh, I got to go in and just mentor a kid for a while. Uh, maybe mentor upstate's a good thing that you can look at and say, hey, this is where my kids go to school. I'd like to give back. I'd like to make the school better and just go and be a reading buddy for a kid. Just for someone to, to be waiting on that kid once a week because they might not even have that at home. Imagine the value that you could add just, just for 30 minutes a week. Maybe it is your HOA. I don't know. I don't know how those things work, and I really don't want to. But maybe it's, maybe it's that. Maybe it's you get on your, your neighborhood board or do something, but how can you add value? Maybe it's you go to your boss and say, you know what? I'll be honest. I haven't worked as hard as I, I could, and I apologize to you. I can do better. Do you mind if I do better? What would your boss think? They'd be like, okay. What is it that we need to do? What, what is it that you, where you are, who are your neighbors, how can you, man, how can you be salt? How can you be light where you are? Your workplace, your, your neighborhoods, your play spaces. Maybe it's your gym. Maybe you need to knock off a couple sets, bro, and have a conversation with the guy at the water fountain. I'm serious. What are your spaces? You're not there by accident. Why are you there? You're there to be salt. You're there to be light. I am too. Figure that out. And then second to that, after being salt, being light, here's the other thing. We need to ask, where's the gospel needed? And I'll go ahead and give it away. It's everywhere. All those places that you just identified that you could make better, the ultimate best is going to be Jesus. It's going to be. There's, there's no way around it. Um, either we're theologically correct, and we know that the gospel must be taken to places, or our theology's bad and we're remaining silent. Um, <laughs> Charles Spurgeon, I didn't say this, he did. He said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. And you're like, man, that's really harsh. It is, but it's true. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Man, we don't share the gospel because we don't have the right methods. We, share the, we don't share the gospel because our theology is broken. Because somewhere in us, we believe that they'll hear it another way. They'll figure it out on their own. Scripture says we're plan A. So all those places that we've identified, those that are our neighbors, gospel needs to be there too. So if, if that's the case, hey, we pray for God to open a door, allow us to be good, to bring good, to add value, to share hope, to share light, and that we ultimately ask God to give us an opportunity to share the gospel. And then maybe disciple them towards a mature relationship with Jesus. No way around it. Sorry if you were brought into a family and didn't know that there were going to be responsibilities, but hey, man, family of God, we have to share the gospel. Because there's a world that without the light that Christ has given us, without that there is no hope. None. Without the hope that was shared for you, you had no hope. There are people out there that are in need. Great need. 
And here's the last one that I'll mention, but it's not the last in order of priority. Um, it's probably the first thing that we should do and the thing that we should do all throughout. Man, we just need to pray. We just need to pray. Uh, man, it, it was so funny prepping for this week. Um, over the last couple and then going down, we, went, we took six people to a, a conference in Columbia this week. And um, normally I hate, I'll say, I shouldn't say hate, normally I do not like large, um, big pastor conferences. They're not my thing, but it was incredible. It was really good. And, uh, and the last speaker of the day was, was talking about the fact that, yeah, we're really good. The church in America is really good about studying scripture, um, but there are two wings on the plane of the church. One has to be the Bible, the other has to be prayer. And he said, if we're not doing both, guess what? The plane never leaves the ground. And over the past couple of weeks, just kind of reading and prepping for this, there's been no major mighty, of work done, mighty work of God done that wasn't preceded by people seeking him about it. There have been no revivals that have occurred without people beforehand praying diligently and hard and lastingly for that revival. Man, I can look back at everyone that has gotten to call in the name of Jesus through a relationship. That never happened by accident. Never. I can go back at some and thumb through the pages of my journal and see them written down for like a year or more of just prayer, just for that person, that one person. If we want to see good, if we want to see value, if we want to see Jesus triumphant in our city, it starts with us asking God to do it. And it continues with us asking God to do it. And it concludes with us thanking God for doing it. Prayer. And so here's the discomfort for the next little while. The band's going to come, and they're just going to play quietly. Um, and I, we're just going to ask for people to stand up and pray, just for this city. Pray for this city. You can pray for the leadership. You can pray for the teachers. You can pray for people by name. Uh, you can pray for your neighbor that you know right now that doesn't know Jesus. You can call out their first name, first and last, if they're not here. We're not going to record this part, so, so you can do it if you want people to hear it and pray alongside you. Um, you can pray for our new interim police chief. Uh, Howie Thompson, who's just taken over in some crazy stuff in Greenville City. Uh, you can pray for the principals of our schools. Uh, you can pray for whomever. But man, we just need to pray that God will use the church, not just us, but the other churches here in this city, to see the kingdom grow, to be salt, to be light. And so, band, if you guys would just come and play quietly. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7 uh, a beautiful passage that most of the time we would, we would always attach to loving our city. And uh, this is to the exiles, the people that were, were taken captive in Babylon and no longer in their city. In verse 4 it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live there, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons, have daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare, the shalom, the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare and you will find yours. Man, this morning as a church, as a family, uh, we get to pray for the peace of this city the shalom, the welfare of this city that only God grants. So if you're a business owner, if you're a teacher, if you're a neighbor of any degree in this city or even your neighborhood outside the city, we don't care. This morning, uh, if God is leading you just to stand and pray, I don't care if it's a sentence or a paragraph, we're just going to ask you just to stand and pray. We'll go as long as we need to. Um, and man, as someone else is praying, hear them. Hear what is on their heart. 
and replicate that this week in yours. You're not going to be able to hear all of them, but hear the ones that you can hear and replicate that in your prayer life this week. Pray on behalf of the city with other people. If we want God to work, if we want him to move, if we want the kingdom to come here, it starts with this, continues with this. I'll open us up, and you can bow your heads and close your eyes, and whoever wants to stand and pray, pray loud, um, and we'll just continue. God, we thank you for a city that we can call home. Uh, We thank you for uh, a city that is ripe for the harvest. God, as you tell us in in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, uh, that we need to pray for the laborers. For the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. God, today I pray uh, that across churches in this city that you are raising up men and women who are willing to be salt, who are willing to be light, who are willing to live up to the identity that you have made us, made for us that we can take the hope of the gospel into our workplace, that we can seek it to be better because of what you've been in us and what you've done in us. God, I pray for Grace Church. Uh, I pray for Reconcile. Um, God, I pray for Downtown Prez. I pray for First Prez as they're worshiping this morning, that the gospel is being preached, um, that lives are being changed, and that, God, you are making more people uh, into uh, sons and daughters who look more and more like Jesus. We thank you for their partnership. Whoever would like to stand and pray, whenever you feel led.